We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians 6, verse 1, and we're going to go to chapter 7, uh, verse 1, this evening. So if you would join me, let's read this chapter together, and then we'll pray. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulation, in needs, in distress, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labor, in sleeplessness, in fastings. By purity, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them, and I will walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I'll be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Father, as we come before you, we ask that you would do a great work in our hearts and in our lives. We don't want to assume that we're in the right place, but we would want your word to instruct and correct. We want to grow in the knowledge of you, as we've just read, to grow in holiness, to be set apart for you. So Holy Spirit, would you have your way? Would you really use this time in your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we're going to talk about empty grace, and that phrase almost seems like the two wouldn't go together. How could grace be empty? You saw in verse 1 of chapter 6 that we're encouraged to not receive God's grace in vain. The word vain, it literally means empty. It's the lack of substance. 
It's well been described as cotton candy. Cotton candy, it lacks that substance. If you're hungry and your body is longing for a good meal and you go for it on the cotton candy, it's not going to satisfy. So when we look at receiving God's grace in vain, it's the grace of God with no substance in our lives. It's empty grace. If you were with us last week in chapter 5, it ended with one of the most powerful descriptions of God's grace, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. God, through his grace, as we have faith in Christ Jesus, he declares us righteous. It's not how we feel about ourselves, how we see ourselves, but what God communicates. He says, you're in my son, you're righteous. That's tremendous grace. We don't depart from the grace of God the moment that we receive Christ as our Savior. Grace is to be an active, ingredient agent in our lives that is empowering us and causing us to respond each and every day of our lives. So instead of an empty grace, it's a grace that's filled with substance. It's a grace that's won our hearts. It's a grace that is giving us the power to be able to live the Christian life. Something's happening in the church of Corinth where Paul feels the need to write to them to challenge them. He says he's pleading with them. He's giving them an appeal and saying, I want you to not see the grace as past tense in your life, but respond to it right now at at this moment. I can only imagine what it would be like to receive a heart transplant. There's one man in our fellowship who has received a heart transplant last year. It went well. And now there's another man in our fellowship that is on the list to to be in line for heart transplants. I've never known anybody that's had a heart transplant. But think if you met the family that had a loved one die. Say it was their wife that died and you received her heart. How would you treat that family? How would you respond to that gift that was given to you, a physical heart? How much more so God's given us his son. And if grace has really impacted our lives and we're living in this unconditional love of God, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that I'm righteous, I'm declared righteous in in God's sight, then our lives should be moved from that place of complacency to passionately following Jesus Christ. So let's look in verse one of chapter six. It says, we then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. What a wonderful way for Paul to describe his relationship with the Lord. It says, as workers together with him, as partners together with the Lord. God doesn't need us but yet he delights to use us and he calls us into service. I think that there's something missing in our relationship with the Lord if there isn't that element of serving, to look to how can I bless others? How can I be a light to those who don't know Christ as their savior? God's kingdom, his will, his plan, his agenda for any particular day. We're on mission with God. We're partners with God. We've been called into the coolest thing ever to be able to serve with our father, to serve with our dad. I think of it in a lot of ways of of what it's like to do a project with a young child. All of my kids, I I love it when we're able to get our hands dirty, do something uh, together. My son Wyatt's fascinated with tools, and if I'm doing plumbing underneath the kitchen sink, which happens more than I would like to admit because I didn't fix it right the first time, 
he's literally right there. I mean, he is, he is underneath the sink with me. He's got a hold of a tool, and he's fascinated by the process. He's three years old. Now, is he necessarily helpful to the overall outcome of the project? Not necessarily, but I enjoy it. It is so fun to have that bond together. Same with my girls. My girls that enjoy those type of things. And when we're out in the yard together, when we're raking leaves together, that's one of the enjoyable things to do with kids, isn't it? And inevitably, if you've got kids and you have a big pile of leaves, what are you going to do? You're going to jump into the leaves. And it's not the most efficient way to rake leaves, but it is the most fun way to make to, to rake leaves. And God, I think, is the same way. Could he do it more efficiently without me? Absolutely. But he says, Eric, I want you to participate in this. I've given you gifts. Every believer, according to Ephesians 4, has been given a gift, a spiritual gift, to be used to edify believers, to reach unbelievers. That includes you. You've been called into mission by God. You get to work with the Lord. So there's great companionship with the Lord, but there's also confidence. There's confidence. God is with you. He's with me. So as we go to try to share with someone who doesn't know Christ, our neighbor, or family member, God is with us. When we take that step to serve believers, we feel way over our head, God is with us, and it gives us confidence. We're workers together with him. And then Paul says, I don't want you to receive the grace of God in vain. I don't want the grace of God to not have any substance in your life, to where it's not impacting you. Titus 2 tells us that the grace of God teaches us. It's the greatest teacher, the love of God, the the kindness of God. When we really understand how good God has been to us and is to us, that's what compels us, that's what instructs us. Some people are afraid to talk about grace, to experience grace, to believe that God has unconditional love, that Christ has accomplished the work for us for, for salvation. If we teach that kind of of gospel, then are people going to live holy lives? And I think yes. Yes, if we come to understand God's grace in its fullest potential, the, the fullest depth of it, it will impact our hearts. But there is a warning here. Don't allow it just to become an empty box. Don't, don't allow it to just become amazing grace without considering the words that, that we just sang. Don't, don't just allow it to become John 3.16 that doesn't have any meaning anymore. For God so loved you, so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. May that never become just a, an empty box in our hearts and our lives, but something that has substance and something that touches our hearts. Quoting out of Isaiah, for he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So as we're partners with God, as we're working together with him in his field, what is important to the Lord? It's that right now is the day of salvation. Right now. This is the moment for someone to believe and receive Christ as their Savior. We have to remember the urgency when it comes to the gospel. Maybe you've never received Christ as your Savior. You came to this Wednesday night drove by, something's happening there, it's a cold night, not a lot else to do, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come in. Maybe you came really intentionally, but you've never humbled yourself to know that you're a sinner, to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again. 
God's word, what we're reading tonight, not what I'm communicating to you, what God would say is today, now, this is the acceptable time. This is the point to turn and cry out to Jesus because you don't know when you're gonna run out of time. You don't know when your life's gonna be over. And it's too late once this life is done. This is the time to receive Christ as their savior. And as we're reaching out to people, wondering, should I get involved in their life? Should I pray for them? Should I share the gospel? Now, now's the acceptable time for them to receive Christ as their savior. There also appears to be an application for us as believers because verse one says, don't set aside the grace of God. And then verse two is talking about how salvation has a present moment impact on our hearts and our lives. Not that our salvation is in jeopardy, not that we've lost our salvation, but the grace that saves us, we still need at this moment. Does that make sense? So, so the grace that saved me all those years ago in high school, I'm praying that God really touches our high school and junior hires as Brian is sharing with them right now. But when God got a hold of my life, I need that same grace tonight. I, I need that. Christ has died for my sins, present tense, what I have done wrong today, what I will do tomorrow, and there's that present application. Paul now begins to describe how the grace of God has impacted the way that he serves. Remember, he's trying to earn back the trust of the church of Corinth, and he says in verse three, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. And it's easy for us to think about this for the Apostle Paul, but think about it for your own life. Where has God called you to serve? Where has he called you to be a light? Who are you investing in? And we don't want anything in our actions to cause the name of Jesus Christ to be blamed. And that's where we need God's grace. How can we live in a way that points people to the reality of Jesus Christ? It's through his grace that's empowering us. But Paul is thoughtful, he's intentional, he's going, man, if I do this, is this gonna bring an offense to this believer, this unbeliever? So I have the liberty to do this. This isn't a sin issue, but I know that it's gonna cause this believer that I'm spending time with this afternoon, this unbeliever, it's gonna cause them to question who Jesus Christ is. So I don't wanna put any stumbling in their way. I don't wanna put any path of offense in their way. In verse four, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. This is a theme for Paul. How did he think of himself? He thought of himself as a servant of God. We, we commend ourselves as servants. We commend ourselves as ministers of the Lord. And then he declares, in much patience, in tribulation, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fasting. This list that we find in 2 Corinthians 6 can be divided up into three categories, the physical, the mental, and the spiritual. Paul seems to be describing the whole facet of his life. He begins by saying, in much patience. And everything that he's listed here in the physical requires patience and endurance to go through tribulation, to go through needs, to go through distress, being whipped, being imprisoned, being in a storm, laboring, not sleeping, not fasting. All of that takes patience in order to endure. If you wanna be used by God, if I wanna be used by God, it's gonna take some perseverance. 
Fruit doesn't come quickly. And a lot of times we lose sight of this. God gets a hold of our hearts, gets a hold of our lives. God, I want to be used by you. I want to serve your people. God, would you be so gracious to allow me to point an unbeliever to you? God says, okay, I'm going to enlist you in my school, my school of hard knocks, my school of patience. All of a sudden, no one's signing up to be used by God. It's like, I don't want to be in the school of patience. What's the old adage? Don't pray for patience. God will answer your prayer, right? We go, yeah, maybe that's true. I don't want to pray for patience. We live in such a fast-paced society. Everything comes to us so quickly and really pretty easily. I mean, the longest that we may have to wait in any given week is in the drive-through at Chick-fil-A. You have, that's pretty bad. That's third world problems, you know what I mean? That, 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 those are the kind of things that we have to have, have patience in. At the harvest gathering, I was getting out my cell phone to, to check the time, and I dropped it on one of our concrete floors, and I broke the screen, you know, and I've really been dancing with the devil in a long time for that. It's a, I've had the phone for like four years, and I've dropped it a lot of times. I've already broke several cases, and by this point, I was like, I'm not going to go get a new case, and I paid for it, you know. They, so it was time today to, to go out to the almighty AT&T store and get a new phone, right, and get, get a, a new cell phone. So get that whole process set up and thinking, well, now I do need to get a case, so I go to Amazon, and I'm looking on Amazon, and, and here's this case, and it's the case that pa- Pastor Robert has. It's a pretty good one. A L- little bit of envy has set in. I was like, I'm going to order the one that Pastor Robert's got. And, and then I looked at the shipping, and it doesn't get here till November 10th through the 16th. And I'm like, that is highly unacceptable. There's, I, there's no way that I can wait a full week for, for a, a, a phone, phone case. And so I so I left my office here to go over to Radio Shack to, to see what they had at Radio Shack. And, you know, they didn't have the Robert Beach case over Radio Shack. And so, so that wasn't acceptable either, you know. And so, so I walked back and I get back on Amazon and I found it on Amazon through Prime with two-day shipping. And it'll be here, guaranteed, by Friday, November 6th. And that was acceptable. That was acceptable to me. <laughs> Why? Because I'm not a patient person. We don't live in a patient culture. You know, a week? I've got I've to wait a whole week? I've got to wait 15 minutes in line at Chick-fil-A? And so then we translate our culture into our Christianity, and God's saying, you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to endure. I want to use your life, and so here are these situations that I'm going to put you in so that you'll have to have patience to see it through. And all of the greats of Scripture... God put them into this type of school where they had to wait. They had to endure patiently. And it's not that at any point we graduate out of this school. When we get out of this school of patience and endurance, it's when we've left the tent to go to our eternal home. This is the means in which God gets a hold of people's lives. He allows us to suffer. He allows us to suffer physically so that people can be reached for all of eternity. And Paul says, this is my ministry. This is what God has given me to do. Jesus suffered physically. His body was broken upon the cross so that we could be reached for all of eternity. We're not gonna be greater than our master. So God will allow us. So he'll intentionally put us in that place so that his glory can be seen. 
Then the next is more on the mental side, in verse six, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness. And again, I think if we're, we're looking at a life that is used by God, grace applied, we go, God, I, I would love for these characteristics to be in my life, purity. And purity is a choice of the mind. It's a choice of the will. The battle for purity and compromise is won and lost in the mind. Wouldn't you agree? And again, we look at people of Scripture, and there's a link between their purity, their integrity, and God using them. Joseph was a man of purity, sexual purity, of integrity, and God used him to be his second in command to all, all of Egypt. You look at Daniel. He was a man of purity. He, he chose to follow God in a difficult situation, and God used, used his life. You look at Timothy in, in the Scriptures, same thing. You look at Paul, same thing. Now, you may be saying it's too late. It's too late. That ship has already sailed. I'm not a person of purity. Today, it's a choice that you can make to cry out to the Lord, to walk in repentance, and choose purity in your life. But there's a lot more at stake than that particular sin. So so here's a temptation that, that is put in front of us as believers We take that temptation and we sin and we get the consequences of it. But you know what we lose? We lose the God-given authority that he had given to us. The plan that he had to to use us. Is God gracious? Does he restore? Absolutely. But is something lost? For sure. We see that in the life of David. In his sin with Bathsheba. God restored, but he lost his authority to speak into the lives of his kids. It was almost like David was saying... I can't talk to them about sexual purity. Look what I did with Bathsheba. And there was something that that was lost there. It's never too late to walk in purity. It's important in serving the Lord. By knowledge. What kind of knowledge are we pursuing? We're pursuing the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Intimate and personal, not just academic. The knowledge of the scriptures. To devote ourselves to the word of God. The word of God is what equips us for every good work. It's hard to be used by God if we're not willing to endure patiently. It's also hard to be used by God if we're not in the word of God because it's the word of God that's gonna equip us for every good work. By long suffering, this choice to suffer long, to continue in the right direction even when it's difficult, and then by kindness, by kindness. Don't you love to be ministered to by someone who has kindness? Even in the secular world, things that have nothing to do with Christ. If you're going to the eye doctor, wouldn't you rather go to a kind one? (laughs) Who wants to go to an eye doctor that says, good to see you, four eyes? I knew that coming in here. Thank you very much. They wouldn't be in business very long, right? Go to a dentist? I'd rather go to a kind one, you know? I know that I don't brush as well as I should. Tell me that in a tactful way, please, (laughs) you know? Kindness goes a long way. Maybe write this down and pray about this. Kindness is the coating which allows truth to be swallowed. Kindness is the coating that allows truth to be swallowed. And that's a choice of the mind. That's saying, I'm going to choose to be kind. Lord, I'm going to apply your grace in my life. The same grace that saved me, God, would you help me to be kind? And then the spiritual, the last aspect, by the Holy Spirit. Aren't you thankful for those words? By the Holy Spirit. I'm already discouraged going through this list. And to say, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, 
says the Lord. The living water flowing through us. God, I'm relying upon your Holy Spirit. I can't do this on my own. So lead me by your Spirit, by sincere love. Interesting that God would put the word sincere there. Genuine. Just like kindness, sincere love goes so far in reaching out to people, as ministering to people. God, help me to really care for them. Help them not to be a number. Help them not to just be an obligation. Help them not to be just something that I should do. But God, give me sincere love for them. By the word of truth, important to, as we share with people, we're not sharing our opinions. We're not sharing our personality. We're sharing the word of truth. God's word is sharper than a two-edged sword. By the power of God, God, do something supernatural. Do something that I can't cook up, that I can't engineer. By the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. This is what God has given to us. This is mentioned because as we begin to serve the Lord, as we enter into ministry, and what I mean by that is a life of service, we're gonna get attacked. Have you noticed that? Okay, I'm gonna serve. I'm gonna serve others. I'm gonna serve my family, serve my coworkers, pray for the lost, be loyal to my church family, serve my church. All of a sudden, you get attacked. Why? Because now you're a threat to the enemy. So we have to take on the armor of God. If you're new to the scriptures and you're thinking, I need to study this more. I don't know anything about the armor of God. Write down Ephesians chapter six. That's where Paul in detail lays out the armor of God. Take on the armor of God, pray it in, use it. So where do you think this kind of life is gonna lead? If we start to live this way, are we gonna be a person of reputation? Are people gonna start to appreciate us? Are we gonna start to get speaking engagements? Are people gonna knock on our door and say, hey, would, would you write a book on Christian parenting? Would you write a book on loving your neighbor, the art of loving your neighbor? Nope, that's not what's gonna happen most likely. Verse eight, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true. You know what Paul's saying here? I've lived this way, but everybody thinks I'm a liar. I've lived this way and no one trusts me. Everybody's looking at me like they're the bad guy. And we have to understand we're serving the Lord and we're leaving the results up to God. You may truly serve God and then your family looks at you like a deceiver. All of a sudden you don't have honor anymore with your friends. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about. But then he's also talking about how the Lord sees him. He doesn't have honor in society, but he's got honor with God. Evil report in society, but a good report with God. We go on, as unknown yet well-known. Who's he well-known by? The Lord. And we can say that of ourselves, can't we? Well, I'm not, I'm not really very well-known, but God knows me. God loves me. I'm known by him. He sees, and it goes on and it says, and dying, and, we, and behold, we live as chastened and yet not killed. So he's saying, I'm dying, but yet I'm alive. I've never been more alive as sorrowful. Please take note of that. If you serve God and serve others, it's gonna break your heart. Tough, isn't that? that that's hard. And so a lot of times we protect our hearts and we protect our lives and we say, I don't want it to hurt. If you can find a way to serve people and for it to not hurt, please let me know. I'm interested. <laughs> you know, I think deep down we, we would all go, I don't want it to hurt. Paul says, yeah, there's sorrow. There's sorrow in, in loving people, but yet always rejoicing. When we see it through the right perspective, we go, God, I know you're doing things in the midst of 
these difficult situations. As poor, yet making many rich, Paul's ministry didn't get him a bunch of money. He wasn't rich. He wasn't wealthy. He says he's poor. He doesn't have anything, but he's making others rich, and he's talking about spiritually. Paul had the joy of looking back on his life and going, I don't have a lot of money, but man, God, you've used my life to enrich people with Christ throughout the whole world. And having nothing yet possessing all things. Having stuff is overrated. Can we just agree on that? It breaks, and it breaks, and it breaks, and it breaks. And you just gotta find a way to try to get a new one, and and then it breaks. And the second law of thermodynamics is so powerful, right? It's like, do I really possess these things, or do they possess me? And Paul says, I'm not worried about ownership. I don't have to own stuff. It's okay. I don't own stuff. I don't possess stuff. But I know I possess all things. What is he talking about? He has Christ. He has relationship with believers. As we look at this last section tonight, you'll notice that there's three exhortations. Uh, There's an exhortation to not be yoked with unbelievers. Then there's the command to, to come out from the world to be separate. And then the last command in verse one of chapter seven is a call to holiness, to to cleanse ourselves. So we're going to break these down and and look at these in three different ways. First is consistency. There's an appeal here for for consistency, and that is to not be yoked with unbelievers. And then there's a call to consecration, to be separate. And then there's a call to cleansing. Verse 11, O Corinthians, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you, our hearts wide open. It's filled with passion, isn't it? I've shared my heart with you guys. I've held nothing back with you. Yet you are restricted by us, but you are, yet you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own afflictions. Isn't it easy to see a person in your life like the Apostle Paul, that they're the ones restricting you? Paul's calling them to holiness. Paul's calling them to see how God's grace impacts their lives on a daily basis. Like, man, Paul, you're so restrictive. You've just got so many rules. You're so, you're so heavy-handed. And then Paul's writing and saying, you know what, guys? I'm not restrictive. I'm not the one laying this heavy trip on you. There's freedom in walking with the Lord. Holiness leads to life. What you're really restricted by is your own affections, your own lusts, your own sin, your own desire for, for evil things. In verse 13, now in return for the same, I speak to you as in children, you also be open. This is the classic father heart of the apostle Paul. He's getting down on one knee. He's saying, okay, guys, I've shared my whole heart with you. I'm holding nothing back. Now, would you please listen in return? <laughs> could, I, could I please get your attention in, in, in return? How many parents haven't assumed the one knee position with their kids, right? And then when they're teenagers, it looks a little different. You're not on the one knee anymore. You're like puffing out your chest a little bit, right? It's the heart of a father. It's the heart, heart, of a, heart of a parent. So here's the first command. He says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And if you're taking notes, this is appeal to consistency. Look at who you are, and who you are doesn't go with an unbeliever. Don't be yoked with an unbeliever. So what's this term yoked mean? It has to do with two oxen. And the oxen would be connected with an oak. 
or a yoke, not might be made of oak, but it was a yoke, go around their necks to plow the field. It would be fitted perfectly for that team of oxen. Inside of that team, you would have a lead oxen. So Paul's using this illustration that this time frame would be well familiar with. They lived this. They plow the field with their oxen saying, you don't be linked with an unbeliever. So this may bring some confusion because you know that Jesus says that he was the friend of sinners in Luke 7, 34. Jesus was the friend of sinners. So is God not calling us to be in relationship with unbelievers? No. We should be in relationship with those that don't know Christ as our Savior. We're the light of the world. We're not to go live in isolation. This is speaking of those deep, most personal, intimate friendships that we have here on this, this earth. They should not be unbelievers. They should be believers. Because if it's an unbeliever and they start to influence you and impact you, it's leading you away from the Lord. So what the warning here is, be careful who you let into your inner circle. Be careful who you give the treasure of your heart to. Be in relationship, be, be in a friendship with an unbeliever. You start to have to start examining, am I influencing them for Christ? Or are they pulling me away from Christ? So one of the ways that this is applied is when it comes to marriage. When you're thinking about getting married, what does the scripture say? God has an opinion. That is the deepest form of yoking that you can have here in this life. You are linking up quite literally with someone for life. Don't do it with an unbeliever. And we'll see why as, as we go through these verses. So if you're dating, you might be going, well, I'm doing some missionary dating. I'm going to lead them to the Lord. I got them coming to church. I got them reading their Bible. We're, this, is, this is really going great. Well, if it's going great, then just let God finish the work and don't get married till they, till they get saved. And they have a consistent walk with the Lord. Because anybody can go to church with a cute gal. Anybody can go to church with a hunk of a guy. Like, oh yeah, we, we met. Where'd you meet? Mm, social media. I invited him to church and he said yes. Wow, he is so spiritual. That is amazing. <laughs> You're dating John the Baptist. This is phenomenal. Woo! This is, this is great. Let's see what really happens here. Let's, let's see what, when things are tested. However, I think that this verse includes marriage, but it goes deeper than marriage. I think a lot of times that as we look at this section of Scripture, we apply it to marriage, and then for the rest of us, we go, well, I'm off the hook. I'm single, and I'm not going to marry an unbeliever, so... This passage is done for me. Or I married a believer, and so I'm good to go on that. But you stop to think about in your life, who are you really linked to? And you might be linked to a website that is completely all about everything with the world and unbelievers. You don't even have to leave your cell phone to be linked to something today. It's got you. It's your passion. It's everything that you're about. It's your identity. It's forming you, and it's turning you away from Christ, and you're linked. It's got gotcha. you. Your core group of people in your life isn't believers. It's something else, and God's beginning to expose that. 
you think about a really deep business relationship where you're pouring all of your earthly treasure into that business relationship. You're outside of your spouse, that's the person that you're most linked to. Could it be wise to pray that God would bring you another believer to be linked with in that kind of a business relationship? I think there's a broader application for us. You may have a really close friend that you consider to be a best friend, and when you go and spend time with them, when you are in fellowship with them, you come away and you reek of the world, and they don't come away smelling anything of Christ. I would encourage you to continue to have them as a friend, but have your best friend, your closest friend, be someone that loves Jesus Christ. Just like we're studying with David and Jonathan. I know, I know, I know, we all need a David and we all need a Jonathan. We need to be surrounded with other believers. Let's see why we're to be consistent in this. It says, for what fellowship has righteousness with darkness and what communion has light with darkness? So God's called us to righteousness. He's made us to be light. So what fellowship do we have with lawlessness? And, and fellowship is koinonia in the Greek. It means to share in common. So as we have friends with those that are unbelievers, we need to be careful that we don't share sin in common. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but he didn't start sinning to relate to them. He could relate to them with pure, sincere care and love for them. He didn't have to enter into their mess, enter into their sin to be able to, to build that, that bridge with them. And God's saying, these two don't go together. Be consistent to who you are. You are righteous. So what do you have to do with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? They don't go together. Oh, but she's so cute. He's so hot. It's got to go together somehow. No, that's called lust. That's easy to have that go together. You know what I'm saying? But light, the fact that Jesus Christ lives inside of you, what does that have to do with darkness? It's the wrong fit. It's the wrong fit. And this goes back to being unequally yoked, is God has made a yoke for you, and you're to be linked with Christ. And if we put darkness into that yoke, if we put lawlessness into that, into that yoke, it's not consistent. It's the wrong fit, quite literally. And then we go on to verse 15. And what accord has Christ with Belial? And Belial is a Hebrew word that means worthlessness. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? So not only is it the wrong fit, light and darkness never go together, but we see that it's the wrong nature. So here's Christ. And Christ, what does he have in unity with worthlessness, with the world? And then what does a believer have with an unbeliever? Do you know that a believer and an unbeliever, you have different natures? What am I talking about? Remember chapter five, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. So you're dating, you're linked up with someone who is not yet a new creation in Christ Jesus. Sin is ruling their lives, just like it did, did with ours. But yet our whole life is now linked with this person that has a completely different nature. It's interesting in Deuteronomy, God is speaking of a yoke, and he actually gives an insight, and he says, you shouldn't put an ox with a donkey inside of the same yoke. And the reason for that is they have different natures. So you figure that out. You're a believer, and you're the ox. If you link up with an unbeliever, you've linked yourself up with a donkey. 
That does not seem to play itself out well. You know what I'm saying? That's not what God had in planned. That's not what God had intended. But there is a pun in there for you if you think long and hard. And verse 16 through verse 18, I think, is the most important reason of not being unequally yoked. And it's the right relationship. The right relationship is that when I'm linked to an unbeliever as my primary source of relationship, it's affecting my relationship with the Lord. And God gives us these amazing promises. There's questions here, but there's promises. And here are these promises that God declares. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Why? Don't be unequally yoked because God lives inside of you. You're the very temple of God, the sacred building in the Old Testament where God's presence dwelt. Now God's presence dwells with you and God walks among his people. And it could be that it's some silly website that you're linked to that's totally of the world. And Christ is walking saying, man, I would love to have that kind of attention. If I could just have the attention of Pinterest for a week, if you would give that to me, if I could have the attention of Facebook, if you were as interested in my face as you are in all of those other faces, oh, that would be, that'd be fabulous. If you loved me like you loved ESPN, and if we're honest, those are some of the things that we're linked to. If you were passionate about me as you were the news, oh, that, that would be wonderful. I'm the temple of the, the living God. That relationship with him, he's longing, he's looking for that. And then in this quote out of Isaiah, it says, I will be their God and they will be my people. So when I'm linked to the world, what I'm missing out most on is my relationship with God. Not that I've lost my salvation, but I've lost my intimacy with him. And he's saying, you're my boy. You're my people. You're my God. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I'll be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Consistency, don't be unequally yoked, and then consecration. God is saying to his people, be separate from the world. Be separate from the world. This is a message that we need to hear, is following Christ is in the opposite direction of the world. It always has been, and it always will be. There's a system that dominates the world. It's the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that's how everybody is going in the mainstream, and God is calling you out of it. And what's unfortunate about the people of God in our day, in our time, in our country, is we look exactly like the unbeliever. We want it both ways. We want this grace of God that saves us from our sins, but we don't want it enough to transform us to where we don't look like anything like the world. We shouldn't fit in with every other unbeliever around us. Not that we're not their friends, not that we're not friendly, not that we're not a light, but they know that there's something different. They know that we're the child of God. They know that we're the sons and the daughters of God. I'm sure there's gonna be some young men in my daughter's lives eventually as they grow older where I want them to know that they have a dad and that dad has a shotgun, right? Hey, they do have a dad. 
and their dad cares desperately about them. And in this culture, with my son Wyatt, I'm sure that there's some girls that are going to need to know that he's got a mom that's going to step in and do what moms can do, you know? Do what dads can do. Like, God's saying, I want you to have identity as my son. I want you to have identity as my daughter. Are you living as the son of God? Are you living as the daughter of God? Come on out. Be consecrated. Come on out. Be separate. Don't choose the same values. Don't spend time the same way. Don't spend money the same way. Don't talk about the same things. Don't use the same language. Don't look at the same websites. We should be able to pull out our phones and go, this is the phone of a believer. There's not pornography on here. There's not gossip on here. They've chosen in the decisions that they make with what they see and what they hear, they're coming out and they're living separate. Not perfect, but separate. And so then on a whole, we even have church leaders that are saying, we want to make the church look like the world. No, God never intended for the church to look like the world. He wants the church to be the church. He wants church to be salt and light. I believe God's moving in our time, moving in our generation, and this is it right here. This verse, this truth, come on out and live separately. And I believe that there are Christians that are longing for that, not to be legalistic, not to be religious, not to be high and mighty, but to be with the Father. And through that place of being with the Father, then there's actually something to give to a lost and dying world. There's genuine love. There's genuine concern. We have strength to be able to be around unbelievers and not compromise. It's not separation for pride. It's not separation for isolation, but it's separation for the purpose so that we can point people to the love of Jesus Christ. And so then this leads right into cleansing in verse 1 of chapter 7. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Notice, because we have these promises. The promises of what? You're the temple of the living God. You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You're the son of God. You're the daughter of God. You're his people. These are promises that God has given to you unconditionally. And because of those promises, then cleanse yourself. Cleanse yourself from the filthiness of the spirit and the flesh. Two categories. Filthiness of the flesh, we know what that is. It's the things that are outward that everybody can see. But maybe the more dangerous are the things of the spirit that we think no one can see, but God sees. It's the pride, it's the bitterness, it's the lust, it's all of those things that lie underneath those actions in in the flesh. How do you cleanse yourself? Well, we know that we can't cleanse ourselves, but this is speaking to the fact that God's asking us to make a decision. He's asking us to make a choice to submit our will, to confess, to confess our sin to the Lord. 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. John's writing to believers there. And he's saying, you need to confess not for salvation, but for right relationship with the Lord. And as we confess, then that cleansing comes, the refreshment comes. If Isaiah 1 tells us, though your sins were like scarlet, They'll be white as snow. 
That's confession and God bringing the cleansing. Also, we know that cleansing very practically comes from the word of God. Psalms 119 says, how shall a young man cleanse his way? A great question. Is there any hope for our teenagers? How do they cleanse their way? By taking heed to the word of God. Jesus told us that we're cleansed by by the word, that he's spoken the word to us, and, and the word makes us clean. Ephesians 5 talks about the word of God as being washed in the water of the word. Remember Nahum the leper? 2 Kings 5, he came to Israel. The prophet says, you need to go wash in the Jordan River seven times. He's like, really, that mud puddle? The Jordan River, we got better rivers back where I'm from. There's a servant that says, you know, if he would have asked you to do something hard, you would have done it. So go do the simple. He goes into the river seven times, and on the seventh time, he was cleansed. Leprosy is like sin. It destroys us the way leprosy destroys And as we're washed in the word, God cleanses us from sin. Keep dipping in the word of God. Struggling with sin, wrestling with sin. I've confessed it, but yet I'm still battling it. Keep dipping yourself in the word of God. And there isn't going to be a day in our lives until we go home to the word, go home to be in heaven that we won't need the cleansing agent of the word. God, I I need your word. I need to be cleansed inside of your word. And here's the end of this chapter, and I think it hits the end of this study, is perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Continuing to grow in holiness. So we have consistency. We have consecration, but we have cleansing. Continuing to grow more Christ-like. It's told about Jesus that he hated Wickedness, and he loved righteousness, and he was anointed with gladness over all of his fellows. Have you ever regretted holiness in your life? We never do. It's wholeness. It's good. And this is why grace is not empty. Because as we go through this study, all of a sudden, as a believer, as the son of God of the child of God, I need God's grace right now for these things to be lived out in my life to not be yoked with the world, to be set apart from the world, to see God really do a cleansing work in my life and pursuing in holiness. Here's my hunch. This is what I'm praying for. Is we're living in crazy times. If you're not seeing that in front of your eyes, uh, you're probably just not aware of all the things that are happening. And it, it is overwhelming. to to really live life and get a gauge for the times that we live in. A couple little snippets just from this week. You know, Egypt has a plane that's bombed, a Russian plane. They think it's linked to, to ISIS and they blow up and over 200 people are killed. And it's said so casually in the news, you you don't stop and think, man, 200 Russians were were killed and blown up in that in that plane. Another act of violence at a college campus, a stabbing took place today. Every week in the news since this school year has started, there's been active violence on college campuses. In our own city, we had a mass shooting over the weekend, right in downtown Colorado Springs. It's crazy, it's overwhelming. And honestly, you look at the decisions of our country, whether it be our government or individually, and as a country, we're, we're just making so many decisions that are blatantly against God, and it's very easy to feel hopeless. 
But in the midst of this landscape, I feel the Spirit of God moving. And I feel the Spirit of God awakening the church. Do you? And I see believers starting to get hungry for what really matters, and that's their relationship with the Father. This world's temporary. This world's uncertain. But there's something unshakable, and that is my relationship with the Father. I don't want to be linked to the world if that's going to affect my relationship with my Father. I want to identify with Him. And I think the potential that could happen in our lifetime as we see the church awaken for God to do great things. And where does it begin? It begins right here with God whispering into your heart, I'm calling you out to be separate. I'm calling you out. That means this has got to change. That's got to change. Okay, Lord, show me what that means. God's saying, okay, let's do this. Let's take verse one of chapter seven and let's cleanse the spirit. Let's cleanse the flesh. And there's more holiness that God has in our lives than we could ever imagine. And again, it's for a mission. It's for a purpose. It's not for us to look around and go, ooh, you're really clean this week. Ooh, you're really holy this week. Where to go, you know? It's for God to transform his bride, to declare his glory so that people can be one to Jesus Christ. So, Father, we allow your word to take us to task, to look deep into our hearts. We thank you that your grace isn't empty. We don't want to receive it in vain. May it be applied to areas of our lives that we haven't yet allowed it to. Help us to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Lord, help us to have you in the center of our lives have believers in the center of our lives so that we can reach out effectively. Lord, help us to follow you as you're calling us to live separately, that our lives wouldn't mirror the world. And Lord, as we spend time in communion, may it be a time of confession, may it be a time of brokenness, where you cleanse the spirit, where you cleanse the flesh by your grace. May we believe that your grace is powerful enough to change us in some areas that we've struggled with for years. God, would you give us a greater hunger for your word, not to be Bible experts, Lord, but to know you, to understand you. So minister to our hearts. 